Um, so Sylvia is a biophysicist. She works at the Department of Biochemistry. Uh, but in her spare time, she writes for Occam's Typewriter on uh, the Guardian Science blog. Um, and she gives talks like this, and she's a fantastic speaker. Um, so without further ado, I'll welcome Sylvia. Thank you. And don't clap yet. So the weird thing is I have this weird Madonna-like thing I've got to wear. I say Madonna because I'm old. I think Britney Spears is what you'd say if you're young, but Madonna's older than me. I'd like to point that out. And if it's and I'm quite loud, so you might get feedback. But it's okay. You're going to tell me if you get feedback. Well, I guess we'll know if you get feedback. Okay, so I'm not going to talk to you about my research, even though I've actually had people uh, ask me about my research. So I'll just tell you briefly. One of the things I research is cocaine. Okay. So cocaine's a great drug uh, for not getting high, but it's a great drug for actually an anesthetic because it's one of the few molecules that can actually go across the blood-brain barrier. I'm sure if you don't even know what that is, you probably know what that means, don't you? Blood-brain barrier, it kind of makes sense, barrier against your bloodstream in your brain. And so what my group does a lot of research on is, and I can talk quietly with this thing on, can I? It's great. Um, so basically, uh, my, my group does a lot of research on trying to understand the physics behind these, why these molecules pass into your brain. So cocaine is a good drug in that respect because it does go flying past your blood-brain barrier. Okay? And it's also quite useful for medicinal purposes, even though people seem to have forgotten that. Um, anyway, but I'm not going to talk to you about that, except for a little bit at the end. What I'm going to talk to you about, and somebody asked me to talk about, I guess, is science and what it means to be a scientist. So basically, I don't know how many of you are actual scientists, so you can check me and tell me if I'm, when I'm full of shit, right? So you have to say, like, no, that's not the way we do things or whatever. So I'm just going to talk a bit about the structure of science and try to talk a bit about the history and structure of science. I tried to do this without a PowerPoint presentation before, and I think it was okay, but it was a bit of a disaster. So anyway, this is a picture of... Uh, I'm going to point to... The, this is a picture of somebody working my lab. This poor slave's child undergraduate student actually is quite good. This is some of the techniques we use. But at some point in science, what we have to do is publish papers, right? So if we want the government to fund us, we have to publish papers, but we also have to tell people what we do in science, right? Because other people want to read it. Now, you're welcome to download this. I paid a fortune to make it open access, so please, please, you can see the title there. I can get some hits on my book, you know, for people that actually read it. You don't even have to read it, just download it. That'd be great. <laughs> right? So anyway, um, we'll talk about, I'm not going to talk about open access, which in principle is a good idea, but very expensive sometimes. But anyway, Sometimes we write papers in these really turgid ways that only we can read, you know? So it's sort of like, it's more fun to go to the pub with your friends and talk in this friend language than to go to pub, the pub with your mother, at least my mother, um, because basically I'd have to sit and explain this to her very delicately for a long time and I can't just use my favorite jargon words. That's why we do it, because it's easier, okay? So please go download it. I'll give you something. So now I meant to bring you a, a test. I should actually give you money, but we're going to have a test throughout this. So if you have paper, that would be great if you're just smart and can remember it, unlike me. So basically what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you two pictures for every scientist I talk about. And one picture is the actual scientist, and the other picture is somebody else from the same era. I tried to be careful about this. Right? So a bonus points if you can actually guess. And I meant to bring a chocolate bar or something as a present, and I failed. So I'm happy to give you some receipt or something out of my wallet if you want a reward. Anyway. <laughs> So, basically, do you know what a scientist look like? I mean, these guys all raise their hands, right? And ladies raise their hands that are scientists, so you can't count them, right? But I think we have this kind of impression of what we think scientists look like. I have on glasses. I probably meet part of the standard. You know, and, we're all, and I have gray hair. That's part of the standard. And when I take it out of my ponytail, it's really crazy like Einstein, even though I'm not that smart. So, basically, that's a pretty good portrait. But actually, you can't always tell from a picture. 
Okay, so this one's easy, right? Everybody knows which one Newton is. Most of you know which one Newton is. Don't say if you do, right? So basically, he said, which is an actual quite ironic statement from a guy like Newton, he said, if I've seen further, it's by standing on the shoulders of giants, okay? Whatever, he wasn't a nice man. But he, he, he probably said this when he was dying and won an award. Okay, so basically, first I'm going to talk a bit about science, okay, and what it is, you know. So if you ask people to come up with a definition of science, it's not that easy. It's really not that easy. We kind of know what it is in our head. But um, Aristotle, at least in principle, said that uh, we can read it, right? You can read, <laughs> I assume. Um, but basically, this is quite a, a straightforward definition. It's basically a body of knowledge. It can be explained reliably and rationally, okay? Now, rational is kind of an interesting word because a lot of us feel like we're rational and aren't necessarily rational about some things, right? So that's a very difficult thing to say. But I don't know. It's not such a bad... Um, working destination for 370 BC, I guess. I mean, they said he said this, but who knows, right? Okay, and so now we have a new definition because we're modern. And we do science in a very different way, so maybe that's useful. But this is a definition, and I really don't want to read this, but I'm going to because it's, cra because it's really long, okay? Modern science is a discovery as well as an invention, right? It, it was a discovery that nature generally acts regularly through enough to, enough to be described by laws and even mathematics and requires an invention to devise the techniques, abstractions, apparatus... An organization for exhibiting the regular <laughs> regularities and securing their law-like descriptions. Does that make sense to everybody? I think it's really confusing. I just think it's a lot of words in there. It's like, ooh, yeah, let's cover it all. It's exploring, discovering, whatever. Okay, but this is what J.L. Heilbronn is. He, he wrote this as the Oxford Companion for the History of Modern Science, and he's one of these guys. All right, first question for exciting receipt. Who's, who's that picture? Okay. But then basically, now the research councils have told us what uh, science is. Those of us that have to get funded by the research councils, this is what they say. They say science is the pursuit of knowledge and understanding the natural and social world followed by a systematic methodology study, which is basically exactly the same thing Aristotle said, I think. Right? So we're basically going to skip all these descriptive money that we pay people to define science and we could have just stuck with Aristotle. But generally, it's kind of a way that we define the world, okay? Now, there's a lot of different ways to define the world. You know, people that are religious define it by beliefs. In science, we, in principle, aren't defining the same kind of world, but what we're doing is asking rational questions, we hope, about small things for things that are testable, okay? So we're trying to rationally explain things we observe in the natural world. So what does that mean? Right? It's a very, very different, different, difficult thing. So if somebody asks you guys who are scientists too, what does it mean to be a scientist? Can you, can, you, can you answer them in an elevator pitch? You know, like I'm on the elevator. What is it like to be a scientist? What do you think science is? It's what I do every day. I write grants, whatever. But I think one thing that's diff difficult is a lot of people do this is basically it's a cheap way out. If you're a scientist, what you can always do, and I guess some of you do it, I know, is like, I'm a scientist. You wouldn't understand, right? Trust me, basically, I'm scientific. Scientists you see in the news do this a lot, which really irritates me, right? But they'll just say, oh, well, I'm a scientist, and we've looked at all the variables, and what we've discovered is that this is right. You know, this is the way we need to move forward. So there's a, there's a problem with scientific evidence, right? But this is exactly the same thing as the pornography definition. I don't know if you've ever heard this quote. So basically, uh, there was a big pornography case in the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, because basically somebody that was very upset about a book, I can't even remember what it was, I think this might have actually even, it was 1964, but the same thing happened with Robert Maplethorpe. Do you know who Robert Maplethorpe is, the artist? Okay, Robert Maplethorpe actually has some wonderful paintings of flowers, and then he has some paintings of some other things that are quite offensive to some people, right? 
So basically, this is a similar case where they were taken to court and they said, you know, here you go, Supreme Court judge, I have this book, it's pornography. So the judge just basically said, it's not pornography. And I can't, and they asked him to define pornography, and basically what he says, I can't define this as pornographer, but I know what it is when I see it. Okay? So I think a lot of times that's a really easy thing to do if you're a scientist or when you're thinking about science. You could say, oh, well, that's science. You know, there's men in white lab coats, and they've told me it's okay, and they've got PhDs, and they've actually written all this stuff down. Now, the thing is, is that this might be a definition that you want to question. Okay? Right. <coughs> but then when you think about science, you think, but then there's laws of science, right? So the one, number one thing people will say to you is that there's, there's, you know, Kant, and we all know who Kant is, he had a moral law. Okay? But there's also laws of science, and how are they different? Right? Is there a moral law? Is there a law of science? There are laws of science, but they're not exactly like you might think that they are. So they're not, they're a bit like our laws. Right? Our laws for crossing the road or whatever. Right? I don't know if, well, I don't know. You guys get to vote tomorrow. Is everybody going to vote? Because you can't complain if you don't vote. Right? I'm not allowed to vote in this country, but you should vote. Huh? <laughs> you still vote. You can whine if you vote. <laughs> You've got a license to do that, right? Well, um, but basically, a scientific law is a different thing than a real law, right? It, in, a, in the sense of an absolute law, it's not an absolute law. So laws here change. Right? We had laws in this country 100 years ago which were, frankly, a bit retarded. Right? You, know, you could hang somebody for stealing your horse. Bad idea. Right? We all kind of think that's not civil now, right? but it was on the law books for a long time. But they are changed and they're mutable. And scientific laws are exactly the same way. Okay? So all a scientific law means is you've built up enough evidence so that what you can say is there's never been an instance where people don't see it happen until they do see it happen. And gravity is the best evidence of that ever, okay? So everybody knows about gravity because you can throw your beer bottle out the, <laughs> out the window and it'll hit somebody on the street and it'll be bad, and gravity is what helps you with that, okay? But on a very small scale, so quantum mechanics completely overturns gravity. So it's a very confusing thing, but we still talk about them as they're the laws of gravity because every day in our observable life, they work, okay? So they're laws because they work. Now, one wonderful thing, my favorite law is the second law of thermodynamics, okay? And it's the, J. Willard Gibbs. So one of those gentlemen is J. Willard Gibbs. Nobody's writing this down. I'm, my fun game is failing. Okay, but anyway, I think of this because I don't have a good enough prize, right? But basically, the second law of thermodynamics is the one that I would challenge you to try to find evidence that have overturned that, okay? So that's one law that seems to be hanging in there pretty well, at least for the moment. Okay, so, but there is also a theory. So I don't know... I talked about a little bit about this the last time I gave a talk, but you know about this whole bit. I mean, there's not many creationists in this country, thankfully. Um, I have relatives that are creationists, unthankfully. Um, but there's a big debate about this in the U.S., and one of the criticisms about it quite often is that people that are religious will say, oh, yeah, but evolution's just a theory. And people that are scientists think that's really insulting. You know, they say, no, 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 but it's, a di it's different. It's science. It's not a theory, but it is just a theory, okay? And you should be proud of the fact that it's just a theory, right? Because most theories fail. Most of the, the big number one thing about science is everybody's got theories, right? We all have theories, and theories within your lifetime fail quite easily. I've already had several fail on a daily basis, right? But my, my students will often come say, I don't think you're right. And of course, because I'm pompous, I'll say, yeah, I think I am right, but usually I'm just pregnant. Okay, so anyway... Um, Basically, what happens, though, is the only way that you can overturn an existing theory is you have to build up evidence, right? So basically, theories work and work and work and work and work and work and work until you actually find evidence that proves them wrong. It's the only way you can overturn a theory. 
Okay, but theories actually have to be testable. There has to be some way that you can address the question in a scientific way, so with lots of tedious measurements that actually tell you whether it's right or wrong. So these are two of my just favorite overturned theories that went around for a long time. So basically, instead of having air, before we discovered that there's nitrogen and oxygen and gases, the theory about how things ran around in the atmosphere was phlogiston, right? Phlogiston is this amazing mystical substance that causes things to burn. You can't see it, can't taste it, colors odorless. But it's actually kind of a good description if you don't know what a gas is, right? So if you don't know what a gas is, you know things burn. Basically, if I take my lighter out and light this table, it's probably going to burn, and I'd get in a lot of trouble, I think. But, um, you know, I, but actually that went away, but only like after 300 years where Davy found that you could actually isolate gases like oxygen and nitrogen and whatever. So our, our, most of our atmosphere is not oxygen, but nitrogen, right? Which is a bit weird. And then canals on Mars, this is my favorite. So basically when people used to look up at the moon, they say, ooh, it's got little pity things in it. And so this guy came up with this canals on Mars theory, where basically there was Martians that had dug their own canals on Mars, right? But actually people were, it was a time where people believed in a lot in, you know, extraterrestrial life. We hadn't seen them. You know, there's lots of stuff in H.G. Well, the zeitgeist, if I can use that word of the time, um, was that there was a lot of aliens around and they were up on the moon looking down at us, you know, probably couldn't be bothered to come hang out in the industrial age of soot. Okay, but anyway, one of these guys is Giovanni, and the other guy is Becker. See? Nobody cares about my quiz. I'm, I'm just going to pursue with it anyway. Right, anyway, so... Now, in the modern world, what do we do, right? What do we do? We have a work... I'm going to give you a working definition of science. This is my theory. So basically, science doesn't remain constant. Science is often changing, and I don't think we not necessarily think about science like that. We think about, wow, somebody's made a big discovery, they're going to cure cancer. And sometimes big discoveries do come through, and sometimes those big discoveries are quite effective. You know, we know that we have cell phones now, and thank you, electronics, we have cell phones, okay? But, and that's a good thing, that's a technological thing, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we understand all the theoretical implications of why things work. Okay, but new observations have to be there to revise old theory. You have to observe something new in order to overturn your theory. New observation proves old theory wrong, which I just said a lot. And new observation also leads to new hypotheses, okay? So so the good thing about this dynamic process as a scientist that's really fun is, yeah, it's great to be overturned, but you discover new things. So it's kind of a process of slowly and very slowly because it is tedious. I don't know if other scientists, you know, you kind of dig one little inch of your Mars canal at a time. Right, so it's very difficult to kind of go through it quite slowly. But then this can lead to new theories and new natural laws. So if you want, so the one thing that's really exciting about biology is there's no natural laws written down for biology. So all the laws we think about with gravity and quantum mechanics and all the in theories, these big mathematical theories are actually all written down for physics. But when you think about biology, biology is so complicated, there's no grand theory of biology. Okay, so in a way, but huh? Yet. Yes, I'm a, well, quite, a yet. But it's about building the evidence to come up with that, and that's what's interesting about biology, I think, right? Is because all of our laws of physics, et cetera, don't necessarily apply to that. <laughs> They're losing the quiz, right? You know that. Yet, exactly. Right, so, working definition, science never comes to an absolute conclusion either. It always changes. You never get absolutes in science. Now, while you might have absolute observables in the sense that every time I throw my glass out onto the street, it drops to the ground, right? I don't actually have an absolute thing that I can do to define that. Science is invented by humans to explain the natural world around us. 
Okay, despite what some scientists say, right? So sometimes scientists will tell you that they can tell you the answer for everything, right? From that, why, the, why it shines and why, why the sun shines, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And some of that they can, but not everything. And you have to be a bit wary about this, right? So here we go. We have with Mickelson. Mickelson, who was a famous scientist in 1894. He basically says, well, in 1894, the more important fundamental laws and facts, physical sciences have been discovered. So basically, pack up your bags, go home, do something else. This is right before quantum mechanics, by the way. And then we have my favorite, my favorite negative physicist, which is Lord Kelvin. Lord Kelvin is the most negative man in the world, and we always pull him out. And basically, he thought x-rays were a bunch of hooey, and that basically, there's all that remains. He's discovered it all. Everybody before him has discovered it all, and the, all we need to do now is do more and more fiddly, boring, precise measurements, and he was going to retire. And then quantum mechanics came along, which kind of proved him wrong, but he was very negative. He also had a lot of control over scientific funding, Okay. And so basically, he was able to push his agenda because, of course, he's Lord Kelvin, and he invented, some, he invented the scale. And one of those gentlemen is him. Right, so this is another working de definition. Is that I think one of the things you have to watch with science is science is not a kind of plowing forward to, un to understand the natural world, right? Well, it is, but <laughs> it's actually not in a way that you think that it's going to be. A lot of science is serendipitous. Okay, and here's just a few examples. So Einstein has a paper on special relativity, right, back in 1916, and then now we have GPS positioning systems, which would be impossible without Einstein's theory of relativity, okay? Now, most of, you know, it's a very mathematical theory. It talks about how things move relative to one each other in space, but now in the 1970s, 90s, we actually have a GPS system, which is why you're, you can find your phone when you're drunk, right? So you have fine friends on your phone, and your, your partner can find you if you're wandering around, after I will be. Uh, in the street. Okay, discovery of the electron. So Rutherford discovered the electron. You know, he was excited about this in lots of these old paper, and now we all have handheld electronic devices. And I can bet you that Rutherford was not thinking, I want everybody in the future to have an iPhone. Okay? Uh, I'm sure he wasn't. So Newton's, and then there's Newton, our favorite negative, our favorite sort of evil. He's not evil. He was just, he was just very, um, he was very egotistical. Uh, basically, he, he came up with the laws of mechanics. He was the first person to write all this gravity stuff down, and man landed on the moon in 1969. Okay, that's entirely done through Newtonian mechanics. It's entirely calculated through those kind of math. Discovery of nuclear physics. This was a bit faster, right? Nuclear physics, 1900s. Nuclear power, 1940. Okay, so we can debate. I'm not saying the atomic bomb was a good thing, but it did give rise to things like nuclear reactors, nuclear power, and we have a much better understanding of atoms than we ever did before. Okay, so you don't really know where your science is going to lead. So I think we like to feel like we're solving these beautiful, big, long problems, but you're not, right? Or you are in a unit of a lot of people struggling together to move forward. Okay, so science doesn't take anything for granted, or it shouldn't, right? It does a lot of times. I mean, of course, you don't, like, operate in a vacuum. You don't just go reinvent the wheel all the time. You can do, but you're going to waste your time being like, what's an electron? You know, whereas actually we, we have to start somewhere, and you can't start back in 1600 rewriting down all the laws of mechanics. What you have to do is build from that. It also theorizes um, without much evidence. So the interesting thing about Higgs, remember Higgs? Yay, Higgs boson. So the interesting thing about Higgs was that he wrote all this stuff down with other people on paper to try to basically understand particle physics, the theory of everything. So he wanted to pull all the standard model, which is what they call it in physics, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, but <laughs> the standard model, and actually calculated that you would see this boson thing. Right? My favorite tweet from that day is somebody tweeted, 
I'm really excited, but I don't know why, <laughs> right? <laughs> because basically he predicted that at this certain energy you would see a particle and then they saw it, which actually proved his entire th theoretical existence, which is why he was so happy. I would have been to you, you know? Actually, for physics, I think it would have been more interesting if he was wrong because there would be a whole lot more work to do. Um, and it doesn't rely on received wisdom, okay? So even though your boss, and I'm sure, I'm glad my group isn't here, but even though my, if you know your boss said, I know this is true, you should believe me. That's a bad excuse, right? So if you need to explain to people why something's true or prove it's true, and you can't ignore new observables, and this is the number one thing I think that happens a lot in practicing science is people try to ignore other people's results because they just think they're wrong, okay? And sometimes they are wrong, but you actually do have to or ignore your own results. We see this in the news all the time, you know, sort of with fraud. It's like, okay, well, I'll just pretend like I never did that experiment and then I'll carry on. Okay, so this is another one of my favorite stories about this. It's sometimes scientists ignore this because they're human, okay? People often get caught up and think, oh, this is my greatest theory of whatever. I mean, I guess Higgs might have been really depressed if he was wrong. I don't know, you know, or maybe whatever it happened to be. I think that's not an easy thing to do. But my favorite guy is this guy, Ingus Simmelweis. Have you ever heard of him, anybody? He was, you have, so you can tell me if I'm telling the story wrong. <laughs> He was a man that basically was a, a physician. So he was a physician in the 1800s, I think, late 1700s. And basically what he did was he was going to all these hospitals and all these people were dying of purple fever, okay? And then he, he was really, you know, this is really upsetting, but what he found is that if, if doctors and nurses between treating one patient to the next patient washed their hands, there was less infectious disease, okay? And he went back and he went to the board of the medical people in Austria, I think it was, and he said, look, this is happening. I just encourage your staff to wash your hands. And they, all, the whole medical establishment said, you're crazy. We've never washed our hands. Why should we wash our hands now? This makes no difference. So he's like, okay. No anecdotal evidence. He goes back and he takes all sorts of records and does all this kind of meticulous calculation that shows, and he had control groups, which I'm sure he felt terrible about, right? And he comes back and says people aren't dying because I wash my hands and they wouldn't believe him, okay? And the metal establishment didn't believe him until way after he was dead, okay? He got really depressed, really demoralized, quit doing what he was doing, and then later we came up with germ theory, okay? But he was actually the father of that in some ways because he realized that you can carry germs from patients. Now, that sounds retarded to us now, but back in the day, they didn't know, just like they thought bleeding leeches was good. So in a uh, bleeding with leeches, not bleeding leeches, see? <laughs> bleeding leeches... But also, one of the interesting things about homeopathy, which I don't believe in, okay, so I know I have a southern accent, so when I say stuff like this, I can see everybody kind of tense up, but, you know, the thing is, is that homeopathy was actually really, really popular in the 1870s because it was one of the few treatments that wasn't actively killing you, right? So instead of being bled by leeches or giving mercury injections, right, homeopathy, just have a little water is great. Right? So you can see why people kind of liked it. It's like, oh, my physician isn't killing me purposely. Right? So science has to start from somewhere. Right? We have to start with a model of science somewhere. It doesn't remain constant. I've already said this. I'm summing up. Isn't that nice? It involves a lot of failure. That's the other thing. Is you, if you're going to be a scientist, you're going to fail about 95% of the time. Right? Meaning that individual experiments don't fail, but your theories are going to die. You know, and it's not probably until long after you're dead, you're, you're not going to know you're going to be dead, right? So it, it won't matter, but most things are overturned within your lifetime, right? Also, interestingly, some of the less famous scientists, I mean, scientists you've never heard of sometimes end up doing the best things, and you don't know until they're, they're, they're far gone. 
And this is one of the things, I mean, I know that you don't have any control of this, but maybe you want to think about this when you vote tomorrow, right? Is the fact that, you know, actually funding broadly is not a bad idea. Now, funding people broadly if they don't work is a bad idea, but funding people to look at a lot of different avenues of science is good because you don't know what is going to happen. Okay, so observables are something we see or measure. Um, you have to, the reason why I'm having a brief word about this is I think, I know that a lot of you are here probably because you like evidence-based stuff, and I think evidence-based stuff is good. Again, I don't mean it's not, but you have to be a bit careful with evidence. And the reason why you have to be a bit careful of evidence, especially if it's not scientific evidence. So as scientists, you know, and you other scientists can tell me if I'm wrong, we don't have that many variables. Sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. But a lot of times I'm a biophysicist, so I essentially do physics experiment where it's sort of like... Is it this or this? Yes or no? Is it this or this? Yes or no? It's not like sociology where you have a thousand different people thinking a thousand different things who come along and there's a, it's a basically this big open system which is confusing. So a lot of theories which you might think are nuts, right? If you think about them, other people don't. One of the first theories of the, why the sky is round, which it isn't, but we think it is, because that's what it looks like, right? You go out and you stand in a big broad field and it looks like a bowl. They thought it was basically a bowl over a flat earth. Now, that's not really that surprising because that's what it looks like. And it's a good scientific theory. It fits all of the, it fits all of the observables. Okay? It wasn't until new observables came along that they said, well, actually, you know, we know the world's round and there's all the evidence. It's when you refuse to believe the evidence that you're in trouble. Okay? So you have to make sure that you are careful about that. But people, like, especially in politics, people use evidence... Because a lot of times it's, it's all future evidence. You're using past evidence to predict the future and you actually don't know the future. It's a different time, it's a different whatever. So some evidence is good, but you have to be careful because people use all sorts of evidence to say all sorts of things and it doesn't to fit their model. And scientists never do that, we're pure. Right? So, so basically, I, I, this is going to be slightly brief because I don't want to wear you out, but... So this is what we do all day, or at least this is what I do all day, and I'm sure there's better scientists than me out there. In fact, I know there's better scientists than me. But basically what happens is you get all inspired. You know, you're like, you know what? Cancer. Cancer's bad. People don't have cancer. I want to cure cancer. So basically what do you do? I want to cure cancer. So you go and you read about cancer. Everybody knows cancer is just multiplying cells. They don't die. So your cells are programmed to die when they need to die because it's really bad if you just keep having more cells, right? But cancer cells are quite, this is a very broad brush way to say it, but cancer cells usually keep producing. Now, they do a lot of other stuff, too, and they're hard to kill off. Okay, so basically the first thing you do is you go read, right? And then you say, well, what are researchers doing now? So I'm going to go read in the literature, I'm going to go read wherever I have to read, and what's what's the current state, you know, of cancer research? How am I going to try to do this? What am I trying to learn? You think about this. Has somebody done this before? Because that's what happens half the time, right? You have this great idea. <laughs> You're like, ooh, red literature. I have a great idea. I'll search on it in Google. Shit. You know, oh, I've got the next great idea. Search on it in Google. Oh, shit. And that's even better than I can do it. So that happens a lot as well, right? So that's the first step. The second step is basically realizing that you can't cure cancer, Right, so there's there's a little depression associated with that, but you yourself, with your research group of five people, are not going to cure cancer. Deal with it. Okay, so then you have to kind of write it in and think. Okay, well, what aspects of cancer can I actually think about? You know, am I worried about cells are programmed to die? They don't, they aren't doing it in livers, right? My liver isn't reproducing cells. Let me look at livers. Let me let me kind of see what smaller piece of the puzzle I can look at. But then you have to think. Well, actually, I think I can answer this. So you have the small piece of the puzzle, and like in my instance, you might say, okay, drug A 
cocaine A crosses the blood-brain barrier, and I know it goes and does this, you know, how am I going to actually test how I can make that process stop? Okay, how can I make that do it? it? Is it because it has water around it? Is it because it's got, you know, cell membrane stuck around it? What is it? Let me look at that. So basically you say, okay, you get really excited, and then you go and you bounce ideas off your colleagues, and you say, okay, I have this idea. And about half the time they're like, oh, that's never going to work. Now, sometimes they're right, and sometimes they're just being negative, okay? So you, you do have to be a little bit right about that. So then what you do is you go, go read again. So you have to be a bit careful, like Lord Kelvin again. Here we go, Mr. Happy, Lord Kelvin, the guy that found, discovered x-rays with Lord Kelvin. And he said, look at this, I found this. And he's like, yeah, that's just crap, right? So you have to be a bit careful about that, too. And you have to be careful about Dionysus Lardner, whoever that guy was. I have no idea. But basically, it's not possible, which it still seems to be the case in Britain. I think British Wales still thinks this. <laughs> which is high-speed high travel is not possible because all the passengers would die of asphyxia. Thanks, British Wales, we're healthier than those Spaniards who can go flying from Salmonica to, to Madrid. Thanks for that. Right. Okay. So basically, then you start thinking, okay, I'm looking at this little small aspect, and then you think, this has nothing to do with curing cancer. But I'm going to tell people it does. Here I go, curing cancer. Yes, it does actually have something to do with curing cancer, so don't get too despondent. So basically, you have to build up observables one piece at a time. So science is very slow. It takes a whole lot of us doing a whole lot of stuff. Um, now, ideas aren't sudden. So this is my other myth about Einstein. So Einstein apparently is a guy... I mean, he was a smart guy. I'm not saying that you know, he wasn't a smart guy. But you know, everybody's always like, oh, but all he did was work in a patent office, which is true. But patent offices at that time in the 1920s and 30s, or even earlier than that, you know, in Germany were places where basically you came with your cool invention and you got a bunch of scientists to see if it worked, right? So they had a huge scientific team. He also had a part-time residency at the University of Vienna where he spent half of his day reading research papers and talking to his colleagues. So he had kind of a cushy job, I guess, if we're honest, right? He, got, he basically got to read papers, talk to his colleagues, have a little sherry, you know, it's kind of like being at Oxford, right? Uh, and then, basically, then they tested the device and did all this, and he spent tons of times thinking about this stuff and talking to people, okay? So he wasn't just in a little vacuum thinking, oh, I have a great idea. This is why I hate that film, Good Will Hunting. Have you ever seen that film, Good Will Hunting? It's like, guy doesn't, you know, teaches himself to read, comes in and vacuums his floor. It takes a little more than being smart, because we're all here, we're all smart people, right? You have to be trained a little bit, and you have to talk to other people. Right? You're not just in a vacuum and you don't just be like, oh, I think I'm going to write down the theory of relativity. I mean, I could write down a theory of re relativity. It would just be crap, right? Then you turn into a raving, raving lunatic. So the next thing that you do is you actually have to write to somebody that's, that's give you money. Okay, so we're really like a bunch of beggars. <laughs> so you go around and you have this idea and you think beautiful thoughts and you decide that you're going to cure cancer one little iota at a time and then you think, okay, I've got to write a grant. And then you have to convince other people to give you money. Now that's not always easy, you know, and then you have to think about what you need, right? Do I need people? Do I need, you know, money? Do I want to buy these kind of chemicals? Now, that sounds a bit boring, but it's actually a lot of work sometimes. How does this fit in the big patient? Can you guess what this requires more of? Reading! So you get to sit around and read. So we sit around and read and stare at computer screens and beg people for money. I mean, I guess that kind of sums it up, right? And cure little tiny aspects of cancer. I don't work on cancer, by the way, so if any of you do, I'm sorry. I mean, not that you work on cancer, but that I'm doing this. So basically you write many more grants that you get funded for, right? You write about 10 grants and you get one of them and then you feel like that, right? So after all that work you get rejected a lot. So this is what I mean by failure. It's not just science fails, it means that your, your grant proposal fails, right? A lot. But in a way it's not so bad. 
until you run, I, I might not be saying this in a couple years, <laughs> I might be sitting on the side of the street begging you all, like you can pass that thing around and I can use it for my research money, right? <laughs> be like, I'll oh, come and give a talk, please. Right, but you get rejected a lot. You also get feedback sometimes though. You get feedback from other people that read it carefully and sometimes they do that. In fact, often they do that. And so you actually get somebody that says, hey, you know what? I don't quite like this proposal, but this is what I suggest you do. And you get ideas from that. And in a way, it's depressing not to get money, but you actually can get something beneficial out of it. At least this is the best way to think about it. Otherwise, you're just going to end up like that lady on the computer all the time. Right, but then uh, this is where I'm, uh, this is what my lab looks like, okay? Um, this is what it looks like in black and white, kind of styly when it was clean. That's what somebody looks like it, laboring in it. That's a glove box. I'm sure some of you guys, have you guys seen a glove box before? It's a basically a positive pressure box. You can put your hands in, you can work in there, you can keep oxygen and water out. It's really cool. Um, but where did it come from? We use it all the time in the stuff that I do. You know, you don't want to have oxygen contaminants or water contaminants. It's the perfect thing. But it actually didn't come from, I don't want oxygen and water contaminants or anything. It came from handling plutonium. So the Manhattan Project, when they built the bomb, nobody really wanted to touch plutonium because they didn't want to get radiated, right? Even though they didn't know much about it there. I, I used to work at Oak Ridge National Lab where they built part of the bomb. They have a lot of weird stuff going on there. Anyway, back in the day. <laughs> Well, because basically they didn't really know what they were doing with radiation, you know? So they just kind of were, it was like a free-for-all. It was a bit scary. Anyway, um, and all these guys discovered radiation. Radi and this, one of these people is Marie Curie, but you're not playing my game. I'm just going to, but I'm, I'm determined, <laughs> right? And her husband, you know, they worked, and her worked on radiation. And in fact, their, their pots were so radiated that they, had, they couldn't actually, they wanted to display them in a museum, but they were so irradiated they had to basically you know, bury them somewhere in a concrete bunker. But do you know how he, her husband died? Pierre Curie. Yeah, I know you. Yeah, he got, he got run over by a truck, basically. <laughs> but he used to walk around with a big piece of radium in his pocket to show people, ooh, look, you party trick, uranium, right? <laughs> Which didn't kill him. He just got, maybe that's why, maybe his leg went out or something, I don't know. <laughs> Right, so this is my research research. I'm just going to talk to you a bit about the techniques we use instead of the science we do, because we do a lot of different science. So um, there they are. What we want to do is, uh, we just talked about drugs, but we're also interested in how proteins fold. So you know proteins, your DNA codes for proteins. Your DNA says make this protein. Proteins do all the functions in your body. Okay, It has to be re read out like a piece of typewriter tape. But basically what you get is a long string of letters, but then it has to fold up into the right form to do what it needs to do, which is... Which is amazing, I think, because like, how does the body know to do that? Okay, so if you kind of sample through and try to make something long fold, you'll get it wrong every time. But your body's like, I'm on it, right? I can do it. I can. In, in fact, you can just take that little protein, take it out of the body, where it's scared <laughs> and non-functional, and put it into water, and it'll still refold into the same form. How does it do that? So we're kind of curious as to that, and it's actually quite important because a lot of diseases are related to things like protein folding, like Alzheimer's is one of them, not a good one. Right? You build up plaques in your brain, and they think that's actually related to proteins giving up on their lives and not folding. Um, and we're interested in, in many other things, too. But what we need to do is we actually need to look at these things on the atomic scale. So basically, the atomic scale is we're at atomic distances, so distances between atoms. And maybe I can just say atom one more time, just, so you, just in case you didn't understand. But we use a lot of faci big facilities. So the only, we want to directly measure where atoms are. Okay, and there's one way that we know, because a couple of years ago was the International Year of Crystallography. Right, you remember that? But those are crystals. Crystals don't move. 
Crystals are boring. Well, no, they're not boring. Sorry. See, that's the thing you should edit out of my podcast, right? But they aren't boring, right? Crystals tell you about the structure of molecules, and those are really cool. But we actually look at molecules in solutions. So we're interested in how water interacts with them, because water's great, right? Water is most of your body. You're about 60% of water, or 70, depending on how you feel. But it's 60, 70% of water, right? And we actually want to look at how water interacts with these molecules to help proteins fold and to help things like drugs go across the blood-brain barrier. Okay, so we use this technique called neutron diffraction and some of these other techniques as well. And it's really cool. It's out at Rutherford Labs. I don't know. Do you know where Rutherford Labs is? It's where Diamond is. But there's another facility called ISIS, which actually generates neutrons. So we use neutron scouting. But it's really cool. You go out there, and there's this huge hall, and you get to play with big equipment, right? Here it is. Ooh, it's up on a big crane. You get to crane things around, right? And uh, they probably weren't too pleased about me taking their picture, but that's tough. Um, anyway. So where do these techniques come from? Um, basically, neutron scattering. Neutrons were discovered, and the, the fact that we can use neutrons to look at matter was discovered from the fact that we had a Manhattan Project, and we built an atomic bomb, and actually we found that there was neutrons coming off of them. And, ooh, what are we going to do with these? Are we just going to generate energy, or are we actually going to use them for something useful? So something like x-rays works in the same way. We actually found this, and this guy, Cliff Shull, uh, one of these guys, Cliff Shull, hint, um, that is won the Nobel Prize for this, okay, because he discovered that you can actually take neutron beam and throw it at materials, so for things like crystals, and you can look at the structures and you can look at how things move. And then this other guy we use a lot of NMR, Felix Bloch, which is one of these two men, and this is the one I think you're all going to get wrong, um, is basically NMR, right? So he did NMR, which is nuclear magnetic resonance, which um, I'm not going to explain because it might get really boring, okay? But if you want me to talk, if you want me to, I'm, I'm happy to sit and talk to you about nuclear spins because I'm geeky. All right, so anyway, then basically what you have to do is go divine, de design experiments, right? So this is what happens when you do a real test. And you, if you don't believe me, you can go talk to my graduate students, right? Get results, double check, double check, double check, double check, double check. Do it again, double check, double check. They hate me. Go remeasure again. Then we go back and say, ooh, that's kind of weird, remeasure it. So we go back and remeasure it, and then we double check and double check and double check and double check. And the reason why you do that is because you really don't need to be wrong because you forgot to divide by two. Okay? Now, if you're wrong for other reasons, that's a little better, but you know. Then basically you look and your hypothesis is right or wrong or needs modification. Most of the time it's not right or wrong. Most of the time you're like, I, I, I don't understand that. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that really works. <laughs> okay, I've got to publish a paper anyway that basically says, yes, 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 I don't understand this, right? Okay. So then you do more experiments, and then you put it back to our context. And once again, you're sitting in front of your computer screen reading. Yay, so you repeat this, okay? And if you're happy with that, at least to some, some point, it's time to present. So here we go. How do you do it? You know, you basically publish papers, you talk, not like this. <laughs> you give new ideas. You know, so basically you open up new ideas. If it doesn't work and your paper doesn't get published in your favorite journal, so we're, you know, everybody has a favorite journal in their discipline. You know, also everybody wants people to actually read their papers, right? So you don't want to, so you don't want to publish papers that not everybody, nobody even pays attention to. That's the worst, right? And that's happened to all of us, I think. You know, you sort of like one read. This is why you have to go download my paper. So even if you don't read it, you can line something in your closet with it. Right, is it doesn't work, right? You have to be prepared when it doesn't work to give it up, right? You know, no matter how much pressure you're on, you have to be like, okay, that idea is crap, or actually I don't understand this, so it's going to go away for a few years until I do. Um, and if it doesn't get published, you can't always see the answer. And then, so do you get despondent and decide you wasted your time? Well, I think if you're government funding people, yes. 
but actually, in reality, no, you don't. You learn from everything that you do, and I think this is true. This is a really silly thing to say, but that's true in life, isn't it? Like everything you do, other than maybe watching the same movie three times on a plane or whatever, <laughs> you learn from every stage in your life, right? So you never know when it's going to be useful because all this stuff is a scientist and as people builds up into one thing that you think about, okay? It may not be rapid, but you actually get experience from all this. So, okay, here's, here's the answer to my, my quiz, which nobody took, right? But you can now. Okay, Newton, left or right? A. Okay, so we have one for A. I can't write this down. Well, I'll do A. So then Aristotle... But <laughs> that's no, I didn't do it either. Uh, so Heilbronn. Uh, let's go with A. Okay, and J. Willard Gibbs. Huh? A's. A. He, you look confident about that. So um, John Becker. A. Uh, Ship Raleigh. That's the canal on Mars, man. B. You, you have to remember this now. After you've been drinking, this is going to be like really tedious. It's like a pub quiz. Um, Mickelson. Nobody cares about Mickelson. Lord Kelvin. Which one of those fine gentlemen? B. B. Good, good shout for the Bs. Simmelweis. Lardner. I don't know who this is. This is a high-speed train. We're all going to die, person. Right? Uh, one of those. Marie Curie. B. Oh, well done. Cliff Schull. B and A, half and half, Felix Block. Yeah. <laughs> so here's the answer. Isaac Newton, Aristotle, Helbron, Gibbs, most of you guys are right. Uh, Kushel, my dad, my dad, who's dead now, but would be pleased to know that you thought he should have won a Nobel Prize. Um, and all, all of these people. So anyway, the whole point of this is that not just because it entertains me, is that's part of the point. But the other point is that people often kind of have, I know you guys don't because you're here, but people often have this preconceived notion about what scientists look like. And, the nice, and, and basically, the one thing that you notice about this, though, is, ooh, it's all boys, right? Men, sorry. Uh, uh, oh, sorry, sorry. But she's the one sci- female scientist, everybody says. So if you're in a corner, people are like, name a female scientist. People are like, Marie Curie. Or if you're from here, Dorothy Hodgkins, and that's it, right? <laughs> but we actually know popularly a whole lot more men. Now, part of that, to be fair, is the fact that women didn't do science for a really long time. They weren't allowed to, okay? So it's not really fair to be like, there's going to be as many, right? It's not going to happen. That's hopefully not the case anymore. Um, but basically, here's three fa- famous women you've probably maybe or maybe not heard of. Have you heard of Caroline Herschel? Yeah, she had a kind of crappy life, right? Because she, maybe not to her, but she worked with her brother who got all the credit. And they used to polish all their mirrors, right? And basically for hours at a time, like in one go, you had to polish all your mirrors. There's a book, that got, uh, there's a book where they, somebody describes her, and I can't remember the name of it. Right, there, it failed. Okay, Dorothy Hodgkins, she won the Nobel Prize. She's another person that we want to pull out every once in a while. But what she did was really hard. She basically took a, crisp, she did crystallography by hand, which nobody would even dream of doing today, right? I mean, you don't have to, thankfully, but she actually spent like 12 years of patience doing this, okay? Which is very hard. And Barbara McClintock, who's one of my favorites, she used to go talk, she was a, she, she did corn genetics and she used to go talk to her plants every morning, which I think is really cool. <laughs> you know, so we're crazy too, as you can probably tell. And basically, this is what it's like. So along the side, you saw these people that I put along the side, and I just 
pull, pull them off the internet. Some of them are nice, some of them are going to be pissed at me. Um, but basically, everybody you've been looking at is a scientist, right? So an actual paid scientist. Um, but actually, this is a beautiful thing about science, and I think this is part that we forget, um, is that basically you can't tell who's going to be a scientist. So that's me and my brother. You can guess which one's which. Um, when I was six and three quarters, um, that's me looking like a little boy. Um, but basically, uh, in where I grew up, right? But you can't tell. And so one of the things that's very important, and I think we have to watch out about, especially uh, if you have a very strong opinion about religion and things like that, is actually you can be a scientist if you're religious or you're different or you don't care about whatever. It doesn't matter who your boyfriend is, your girlfriend is, your partner is. You know, It doesn't matter where you're from, what you look like. You can't ever tell, right? It's about education, which is very important. And it's not, it's not even about education as such. It's about a certain kind of tedious education. Now, that doesn't necessarily... <laughs> you know, but science needs everyone, and it's not always this great thing, right? It, it's basically staring and reading at books. It's a little more fun than that. Okay. So this is my straw of the world, which I'm sure is basically... This looks like we're having fun, doesn't it? So this is basically... Um, I said, guess the pub. Can you guess the pub? Popcorn. This is at the king's arms, right? Sorry, St. Old Dutch. Um, but basically, this is my group, um, and this is them looking happy because I've just bought them beer and popcorn. That's pretty cheap, though. I should have bought them a meal. And th this is where I blog. And thank you, actually, for all your patience listening to me with this long, I think it was a long conversation. So that's it. <laughs> <laughs>